In the 1999 French Grand Prix, Heinz Held Frentzen showcased the team's knack for making the most of a dramatic wet race yet again, with a bit of help from the pit wall and a man in a field. This episode of Bring Back V10s looks at how Jordan pulled off this famous win and all the other stories going on in F1 in the summer of 1999. Joining me, Glenn Freeman, to kick things off is Bring Back V10's regular Ed Straw. So Ed, we'll start with the traditional opening question and the floor is yours. France 1999, what's the first thing that comes to mind? It's a slightly left field answer actually, which is appropriate because it does involve a field. I actually listened to this race on the radio and was very confused all the way through because there was so much chopping and changing going on. You had no live timing or anything. It was uh, it's most difficult to keep on top of what was happening. But that was because I was at the Glastonbury Music Festival, fortunately in one of the dry years. So I was I was sat in a tent on the on the Sunday listening to to what was going on, which is just why I remember that race. I have a sneaking suspicion I've never actually watched the race in full before I reviewed it for for this podcast. Uh, I think I probably watched the highlights, but not the actual full thing. So it was fun to go back and uh, and enjoy the race anew. Yeah, it's a brilliant race as well. If you watch this one in full, you certainly don't get bored at any point. Remember to get your questions in for our series finale using the hashtag BringBackV10s, where you can ask us anything about F1 from 1989 to 2005. We've got an incredible amount of them already. And at the end of the series, we'll do our best to get through as many as we can and that will be around the end of March, uh, just before, as we record this, the scheduled start of the F1 season. Uh, you can also submit a question by leaving us a five-star podcast review, if you feel so inclined. And I'll do our first shout-out of the series to some of our latest reviews. So thank you very much to Winning F104, Brundu, Jack4491, F1 Maniac93, Marcus, Lilly, and Roland189. Thanks for the reviews and the questions. As I'm sure you've worked out by now, a lot of work goes into each of these episodes, so it does mean a lot to hear that you're all enjoying them. At this point, I'll bring in our second guest, a man who was in the thick of it on the Jordan pit wall that day at Manicourt, and also responsible for the Jordan 199 that Frentzen used to such great effect that year, and that's Mike Gascoigne. Mike, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. You're not designing Formula One cars anymore, but you're still a busy man at the forefront of technology. So what sort of things are you working on at the moment? Uh, yeah, well, now I'm the Chief Technical Officer of Vertical Aerospace. Um, uh, basically, um, since leaving Formula One, I was running my own consultancy company, MGI, and we were doing a mixture of motorsports and aerospace work. But um, uh, we did some work for Stephen Fitzpatrick, who uh, some of your listeners may uh, recognise as the guy who owned uh, Manor in its last year in Formula One. And um, he owns a company called Vertical Aerospace, basically involved in eVTOL aircraft, so uh, electric vertical takeoff and landing aircraft um, and air taxis, which are you know, the industry is predicting to be a massive sort of growth sector in the coming years. And we're looking at designing the world's first commercial um, air taxi. So a lot of similarities with motorsport, high performance, lightweight composite uh, vehicles, hybrid or electric powertrains. And uh, it's a huge challenge, a huge market. And we want vertical in the UK to be 
a leader in in what could be a huge market sector. Yeah, it's fascinating stuff. And I'd recommend that our listeners uh, follow Mike on Twitter because not only does he talk about that project from time to time, but he's also uh, very happy to share his memories from his time in Formula One. So there's always an interesting post or two on Mike's account. But looking at France 99, uh, our first question to every guest on the show is always the same, which is when you think about what we're going to talk about today, what's the first thing that comes into your mind? Um, the weather. And, uh, I, you know, in that year, Heinz Harold drove fantastically. And, you know, with, with two or three races to go, was in with a chance of winning the world championship. And, you know, as always, Jordan were the underdogs. But at time, you know, Heinz Harold was genuinely quick. And I think the one thing about it is, you know, he won that race. You know, he didn't inherit it. He did. He drove flag to flag quicker than anyone else. And Jordan were the quickest car that weekend. And that often gets overlooked. And, uh, you know, it was a great weekend for the team. Yeah. And Jordan was in the news all over the place around this time of the season. And a lot of that we will go into now. But the big talking point before the French Grand Prix was the condition of Frentzen because he'd had a big crash after suffering brake failure towards the end of the Canadian Grand Prix. Frentzen was advised to rest between the races and not do any testing. He had various scans and tests carried out. F1 doctor Sid Watkins said uh, Heinz Harold had bruising to his left leg and right shoulder, but the chief medical officer from the Canadian Grand Prix said he had a little bit of bleeding into his skull after taking a bang on the side of his head. Frentzen declared himself fit to race and turned up in France saying, I have some bruises and you notice them on the first lap, but then you are focused after that and you forget you have pain. His main concern was that he and the team had lost six points in Canada and that could be very important. And it emerged after the French Grand Prix that Frentzen was actually driving with fractured knees and that blood had seeped into tiny cracks in the bones, causing quite a bit of discomfort. Eddie Jordan says that Frentzen could hardly walk without feeling pain, but he was actually more comfortable when he was sat in the car. So, Mike, that all sounds pretty uncomfortable for Heinz Harold. From the team's perspective, was there much of a concern in the run-up to the race or was the feeling that you know racing drivers always get themselves ready for the weekend and he'd be okay to drive? I think very much the latter. You know, it's a long time ago now, but I don't remember that uh, Heinz Harold's physical state was really a question throughout the weekend. I mean, Heinz Harold was a fairly quirky character. I mean, the bang on the head might well have straightened him up rather than made him a bit, bit more squiffy. Um, but... Um, you know, it was a big impact. I, I wasn't in Canada. I remember watching that race on TV and actually a couple of laps before the incident, um, seeing the brake dust coming out of the um, out of the, uh, the, the the wheel of the car and thinking, oh, no, this doesn't look very good. Um, and obviously had the failure. And it was a time where, you know, we were very competitive. Losing those points was a real blow to the team but um, although you know obviously he was bruised and all of that it was never really an issue for the team throughout the weekend and racing drivers you know they want to race they they want to um, they want to drive and Heinz Harold knew he had a competitive car and, he, and you know he, he wanted to be in the thick of it. Always easier to motivate a driver to drive a quick car so let's talk about that car the Jordan 199 
We've covered in the past how Jordan became title contenders later in the year, but we didn't have the benefit of the insight from the man who designed the car at the time, so this subject is worth a revisit. Uh, Eddie wrote in his book that Jordan still had doubters and people questioning if they could raise their game after the way 98 finished, and he felt there was a risk that the 199 would suffer from that because the 98 car was developed so late into the year. But he was relieved when there was no repeat of the slow start in 98 and Jordan was on the pace from the start of 99. But Mike, he also said that you started the year on probation in your role, which I imagine went away quite quickly. And I've seen an interview you did years later with Motorsport magazine where you said the 99 car was pretty similar mechanically to the 198 and that the main work you undertook was to improve it on the aero side. Was that always going to be your focus going into 99? Yeah, and that was really a follow-on from 98. When I turned up in 98, I mean, Jordan, you know, I came from Tyrrell, which was a, a back-of-the-grid team, and, um, you know, Jordan had been, you know, made strides and was a good midfield team, and it had a lot more resource. But the 98 car was clearly struggling massively. And, um, you know, to be honest, when I looked at the aerodynamics of the car and uh, looked at the wind tunnel data, it was very, very clear that the front wing didn't work. And and really, um, Jordan, for being a midfield team, were a long way off in what they were doing in the wind tunnel. And the big step that that car made was, was basically to fix the front wing, which didn't work. And it transformed the car and suddenly we had a raceable car. But that process of investing in the wind tunnel, um, in the people and prioritising the, the aerodynamics of the car, which is where all performance comes from uh, in Formula One, um, just continued from really uh, the moment I joined in 98 through. So we ended up with a competitive car in 98. And the 99, it, it was developed. It had a twin shaft gearbox um, that was different from the 98 car. But the, the aerodynamic development just ran through. And the fact that we finished 98 so competitively, I was always fairly, um, uh, very confident that the progress we were making, um, that was going to come through in a competitive car. And um you know, I didn't realise I was on probation. I think with Eddie Jordan, you're always on probation one way or the other. Um, but, um, you know, certainly I was very confident in the development of the 99 car because, you know, you could see the wind tunnel numbers and we were making more and more progress. And when you finish, you know, competitively with the 98 car and you know the numbers and you know the work you're doing is real and correlating to what's happening on the track, which we did by the end of 98, then, you know, you, you know that you're going to be competitive and that proved to be the case. Yeah, well, I don't think we heard any more about the probation. So you obviously cleared that, which was very generous of Eddie. Now, uh, Ed, 98, as we explained there, was the year that Jordan really came good, took the first win at Spa. But given, as Mike detailed there, this was a midfield team, essentially, was it realistic to expect that the team could keep going on that upward curve? Yeah, I think to keep improving was certainly realistic given the progress Mike talked about in, in 98. team had good backing, decent facilities, recruited well, so good personnel. There's a real upward curve there. 
doesn't necessarily mean it should have expected to have been a title contender automatically, but it was a good enough position in terms of what it had to be a really, really threatening outsider of Ferrari and McLaren, which obviously had that little bit more resource underachieved even slightly. And, and Jordan achieved that with a car that was very good, that could win races, was always a threat for, for decent results and could just nail a really, really strong season. So, yeah, very realistic. Now, next, Jordan Driver was in the news between Canada and France as well, and that was Eddie Irvine, because he told Italian magazine Auto Sprint that it was in his Ferrari contract that uh, not only did he have to let Michael Schumacher through if he was running ahead of him, which I think we all knew, but he also said, if Michael is two positions behind me and I'm leading, I have to slow down and try to get him closer to the guy who's running second, which could cost me first and second place. Schumacher didn't understand what all the fuss was about, saying, uh, I would accept being number two to Irvine if he is faster than me, and I would accept having equal status with him if he was as fast as me. But I have the impression that is not the case. Uh, Jean Tot of Ferrari wasn't that bothered either. He said, Eddie's job is the same as it has always been. He is given the same car as Michael and he must try to get the best out of it. Now, Ed, after the French Grand Prix, we got the first murmurs in the Italian press that Irvine was going to be replaced at Ferrari for 2000. Do you think that's partly why Eddie became so public about the terms of his, of his deal? Yeah, well, Eddie Irvine's a very calculating character, isn't he? So he will have wanted to get that out there publicly to remind everyone of, of what his status was. He wanted to get a deal elsewhere. He knew he had real value as an incumbent Ferrari driver. And he, of course, uh, already won that year. So he needed to, to kind of build that, that market value. And it worked pretty well for him, given, given what happened in that he got three very, very well-paid seasons out, out of Jaguar, even if the machinery wasn't up to it. It was at least a pretty good move financially. Irvin was always thinking about his negotiating position, so he did things deliberately, even if he was perhaps betrayed as someone who was prone to shooting his mouth off. He knew what he was doing. Now, Mike, as your cars moved up the grid during this era, you did plenty of battles with Ferrari. What did you make of their strategy and the way they played the number one and number two scenario so obviously around this time i mean it's it's always been ferrari's way and you know there's teams that do it and teams that obviously don't and you know you can look at you know some of the the british teams and the sort of the the, the sort of famous um uh, championship losses because they've split um you know their two drivers you you know you can look at williams um, with Prost winning the title, you can you can look at McLaren, you know, up till sort of um, you know two thousand and eight or two thousand and seven or whatever. Um, uh, but there's always been this sort of thing of letting both drivers race. Ferrari, um, you know, have never been that way. They've always focused on one driver, and you know, the best drivers and Michael was the the. the the crowning example of it, are very good at dominating the team and making sure everything's for them. And, you know, and it worked for them. But, you know, they, they were winning title after title in that, that era. Um, you needed sort of, or, or they were, you, you needed compliant drivers to do that. You needed number twos that were happy to be number twos. And, and actually, Eddie was a great example of it. You know, he, he knew what his contract was. He, he, he was a very shrewd guy, Eddie Irvin. He he 
um, you know, he played this sort of playboy role and happy-go-lucky. Actually, financially, a very sharp operator and from a business sense. And when he went there, he knew what he signed up for, and he was the perfect number two. He was quick, you know, and he was happy to to fulfil the role and, and bank the check, take the wins that were on offer, um, you know, and obviously he went on to have a, a title challenge when Michael wasn't racing. Um, but, you know, he, he played the game and, and, and it went on to work for Ferrari, so you can't knock it. 1999 was also the first year on the grid for BAR, and this is a topic we often get asked to discuss in more depth. We'll do that in the future. We'll talk about that whole 99. I could say, don't get me started on BAR, because obviously I'd left Tyrrell when they didn't want me to... Uh, <laughs> They didn't want me to uh, work for them. So uh, I enjoyed that first year. <laughs> well, let's see where this, this next segment goes then. Uh, as we say, no points for BAR in the first year. And by the French Grand Prix, their performance, or should I say underperformance, was in the spotlight with no points on the board and a terrible finishing record as well. Uh, Jacques Villeneuve and team boss Craig Pollock made no secret of the fact BAR was performing very below expectations. Although they pointed out in Villeneuve's words, it's easy for people to forget that we are a first-year team and we are quicker than first-year teams have ever been. The situation doesn't look that bad for a newcomer, but we are way below our expectations and that is frustrating. But Villeneuve and Pollock at this time seemed to turn their attention onto technical chief Adrian Reynard, who was one of the founding members of the team. Villeneuve said, we hardly ever see him. That's probably the department of the team that's been left behind a little bit which I think will be of interest to Mike. And he said that Reynard's hands-off approach was frustrating compared to someone like Patrick Head, who would be in the thick of everything at Williams. Pollock wasn't on the attack quite so much, but he did put some pressure on Reynard, saying, we've always been aware that Adrian would be a part-time player for BAR. We have made it very clear at our recent board meetings that we fully believe top management of the company needs to give 100%. Adrian has many companies and interests and we feel he should prioritise them. So, Mike, I think that's the key point that you can probably help us with. Reynard, as we know, was a business that built cars for all kinds of championships at this point and was having success in America. But when it comes to F1, technically, does that have to be your sole focus if you're going to do it right? Absolutely. And, it, and it's a huge step up from customer racing. And, you know, that sort of arrogant, we've won, you know, the first race in every um, sort of uh, category we've entered and we aim to do the same in F1, you know, they, the, the step up is huge. And, and it was clear to me when they um, came down, Malcolm Osler used to, and, and Adrian Reynard used to come down to Tyrrell and talk to Harvey and myself and it was very clear they were totally underestimating the step up. And uh, I just want to tell one little anecdote at this stage. Um, Craig Pollock famously made a, a statement um, uh, when he was, because um, he ran Tyrrell for a year in, in, in 98 um, during it, its sort of worst ever season. And he made a statement when asked what was it like Um and he said he had to buy a new pair of shoes because with Jack, he was used to being at the front of the grid and he'd worn his shoes out uh, walking to the back of the grid every race with Tyrrell. And in 99, I made sure that every time he walked off the grid, 
um, I went and said hello to him as he walked past me from the back of the grid when my cars were on the front <laughs> and asked him how his shoes were holding up. So uh, uh, it, 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 I, I enjoyed their, um, their, their lack of success, but obviously they, they went on to better things. But really, they totally underestimated the step up that it took. Yeah, and as Mike said there, Ed, hopes were sky high, well, certainly too high for this team. But did Villeneuve have a point that by new team standards, BAR was doing okay, or did they lose that excuse because of how much money they were spending? There was a bit of a point because they had, I think, the sixth fastest car on average if you look at the qualifying pace over the season, which for a new team, even one with money behind it, is pretty good. But ultimately, they made their own bed and lay in it, didn't they? They they didn't build on what they acquired in Tyrrell. They just saw acquiring Tyrrell as a way to get a place on the grid, really. And even though Tyrrell's results have been modest, they were a very effective minnow team who'd done some pretty innovative and interesting things in, in previous years, even when working on a, on a small budget. So it's the, the underestimation that, that Mike talks about. But the bottom line is they had a world champion, a good budget, big names involved and they wanted to be a grandee team in the long term which was fine but they just thought they'd, they'd turn up and and do it straight away they were okay they were okay quick unreliable they, they, they basically thought Tyrrell was worthless you know what they paid for was the entry and actually Tyrrell had a lot of very high quality people that actually allowed it to, to perform way above its budget and, and resource in latter years although that was modest and in effect, they threw that away because they didn't want that. They they were going to hire people who were going to do it better. And and they threw away the only value of Tyrrell, which was its people. Uh, and, and that's what led to them being where they were in 99. Yeah, some harsh lessons learned. Let's talk Jordan again, though, because the huge news ahead of the French Grand Prix was Damon Hill announcing his retirement from F1. Hill looked inspired in the second half of 98, winning at Spa and leading Jordan to its then best ever constructors finish. But he was all at sea in 99. And at this stage of the season, he had one points finish while Frentzen was up in fourth in the championship. Hill said at the time he found the cars almost impossible to set up with the groove tyres. And he added, I've never got so little enjoyment out of driving an F1 car, which he said was no reflection on the Jordan. He gave an emotional press conference in France where he also said, I have considered stopping a number of times in my career when there have been a lot of low points, but if I stopped at all the low points I came across, I would never have been world champion. I set out this season with high hopes and intentions high. Despite that, I can't get the best out of the car or myself. I find myself trying very hard, but the chemical reaction or whatever it is, is not taking place and I find myself distracted which is not a good position to be in when you're driving a Formula One car. Now, Mike, obviously this saga with Damon rumbled on throughout the rest of the year, and there was a lot more going on around Silverstone, which we'll cover another time. But in the first half of the year, when it was clear that Damon seemed to have lost that magic, what, what were your thoughts? I mean, it was a difficult situation for, for Damon because he did lose it. I mean, in 98, you know, when, you know, he was up against Ralph Schumacher and he, he led the team. He won the Spa race and a lot been made of it that um, Ralph, you know, couldn't challenge him at the end, which was entirely right. But he led it. But I think Heinz Harold that year was exceptional. And 
that plays into a driver's head. I think the other thing with with Damon, he was right foot braking. Heinz Harold was left foot braking, and um, he was really struggling with braking. And and when it goes, you know, in your head, and you you start to have doubt F1 driver, it's really difficult. And you could see that happening. It really didn't help that that Eddie started playing mind games with him. Eddie wanted to 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 him to retire. He didn't want to force him to. He wanted Damon to make the choice. And there was just a lot going on. And when, when a driver's struggling, the last thing you need to do is start playing with his mind. And, and that's what was happening in the background. So that all just, you know, the situation just got worse and worse and worse. And Damon said at the time that his motivation wasn't a problem. But in his book, which I'd recommend everybody should read if they've not done so already, Damon's insight into what was going on inside his head that year is fascinating, even if he still doesn't have the answers for what went wrong. And looking back now, he does admit that with the thrill having gone because of the groove tyres, the motivation started to follow. Damon also said, a driver's mind is fragile and dangerously deluded at times. If a driver is not quick, he looks for a reason everywhere but within himself. I became paranoid that perhaps Eddie was up to something, I was in the last year of a two-year deal, and with Frentzen starting a two-year deal, it made sense to downgrade the driver who had to renegotiate. Eddie's written a book as well, which we've referenced plenty of times on this show, and he too remains mystified about Hill's 99 season. And he says, Damon just did not look happy in the car, which was difficult to understand because Frentzen was going so well. Something happened inside Damon's head, and only he knows what it was. We were trying everything, fresh engines, the opportunity to drive Heinz Harold's car, but nothing seemed to help. If Damon had been on a race-by-race -race contract, he would have been sacked. Now, Ed, in the 90s, you were a big Damon Hill fan. So after the highs of 98, how difficult was 99 to watch? Uh, well, I'd have been a 19-year-old fan at that point, still a couple of years from starting out my career in motorsport journalism. So uh, much more naive about how these things work. So I'm sure I was finding excuses uh, for him, although I can remember that eventually the penny dropped and it was clear he wasn't he wasn't really very present, shall we say, and wasn't wasn't very determined. If I could see that from afar, I guess it would be painfully obvious for those those working uh, with him. So yeah, it was a slightly unedifying end for for Damon Hill, but ultimately it is down to the driver to to perform in the car. Jordan fortunately had a, a very very strong driver in Heinz Harold Frentzen. I guess maybe you could argue that from a a driver's championship perspective, perhaps there was a, a slight benefit from having very much a clear number one driver in terms of the performance level, although it obviously left Jordan with fewer constructors championship points than, than they deserve to have given Hill's contribution was so was so small. And Eddie makes another interesting point where he said, had Heinz Harold not been doing such a fantastic job, we might easily have panicked and made unnecessary changes to the 199 but Frentzen's performance was, in fact, turning the screw even tighter on Damon. And he said Hill arrived in France having had a mini crisis during Monaco and Canada. That's a really interesting point, Mike. How key for you was Frentzen's form? Did that at least give you the comfort that whatever was going wrong for Damon wasn't anything to do with the car? I think, you know, we, we knew the car had performance in it, so I don't think that was ever an issue. Interestingly, I remember um, Heinz Harold turning up in the motorhome on the Thursday at Magny Court and Damon sitting there and um, he actually said, he said, this is, he said, 
I'm under a load of pressure and it's all your fault, Heinz Harold. And that really showed the mindset Damon was in because, you know, I think everyone knew the car should be scoring points. And, and, and basically when Heinz Harold friends went off, you know, he did in Canada, then you didn't score any points and um, or, or very few. And, and that was piling pressure on Damon. And it just showed where, you know, that statement just showed where his head was. We'll come back to Hill later as the misery continued, unfortunately, in France. But, Ed, let's have a quick chat about Alain Prost's F1 team, as this was the home race for Prost Grand Prix, which always brought with it some extra attention and pressure. The team formerly known as Ligier was in the news, with Prost uh, asking questions about the commitment of his engine partner, Peugeot. Discussions started ahead of the weekend between Prost and the bosses at Peugeot about what would happen after their current deal ran out at the end of 2000. Peugeot's public stance on this was that there was plenty of time for those talks to take place. But Prost, who, as we discussed in our Spa 2000 episode, considers the three years he spent with Peugeot to be the most miserable time of his life, or one of, he was feeling much more feisty. This is what he said. There will soon be far more manufacturers involved in F1, and there are important questions to be asked. Where does Peugeot want to be in the future? What involvement is required to beat all the others competing in F1? That was my question to Peugeot. It's no good signing a contract with a manufacturer just to get an engine put in the car. That is why no decision has been reached. It's better to postpone any decision than to make a bad one. So Ed, was Prost right by this stage to question Peugeot's level of commitment particularly with what we knew was coming, which was the manufacturer boom of the 2000s. Yeah, he was spot on. It was clear that that Prost-Peugeot French super team dream was was floundering by that point. And much of that promise of the, the Peugeot engine that it showed with Jordan uh, previously had, had faded. It required an ever more intensive approach to be competitive as an engine builder in, in Formula One. So the writing was on the, the wall that F1 was becoming a bit more of a millstone around uh, round Peugeot's neck, given its, its struggles. We can't blame all of the team's shortcomings on Peugeot, that's for sure. But I think Prost was probably right to start bringing pressure to bear and say, well, you have to put up or shut up. And sure enough, of course, down the line, Peugeot did shut up. Yeah, and then a year later, Prost went out of business because it couldn't afford its uh, Ferrari engines. But let's get back to the on-track action in Manicor. And this is a memorable qualifying session because it produced such a mixed-up grid with Rubens Barrichello taking Stewart's first pole in horrendous conditions. This was partly down to Barrichello being one of the few drivers to venture out early in the session, along with Jean Lacy, who lined up second, and the Prost of Olivier Panis in third. Before we get to how the rest of the grid shaped up, including a tale of two sides in the Jordan garage, let's quickly hear from Gary Anderson on how Stewart made the right calls to get Barrichello on pole. Yeah, it was great to see Rubens uh, sitting on pole on the Stewart. It was a definitely a good lap from the young guy because um, you know it's one of those situations where you have to make decisions and you have to make them on the hoof. Magnicur's always offered quite a lot of grip when it was wet, but it gets slippery when it was uh, when it got greasy. So we decided to go out early. Um, it was raining pretty heavily, but. Um, on the feeling that it was probably going to get worse. And if it didn't get worse, the track would get greasy and probably slower. And if necessary, they could go back out again later in the session. So off Rubens went and, you know, 
he was always committed to those type of conditions and those type of risks. And, you know, I learned that from Jordan uh, at Spa in 1994. Um, so really, it was, in truth, I don't understand why other people didn't go out um, because we got the lap in. It was a good lap. So we sat there and waited. And as I say, if we needed to, we could very easily uh, have gone out again at the end of the session. Maybe we wouldn't have been in pole, but we didn't. Uh, it didn't do any harm to go out early. Obviously, other than maybe if Rubens had fallen off the track, but uh, I had confidence in his ability and just let him get on with his job. So, what about the rest of the grid then? Behind the early running top three were David Coulthard's McLaren, Frentzen's Jordan, and Michael Schumacher's Ferrari. McLaren was responsible for the call for its drivers not to go out in the beginning, and that backfired massively for Mika Hakkinen, who ended up 14th. Interestingly, Ron Dennis said our job was to cover the competition, suggesting they were watching Ferrari more than the weather. But at Jordan, the reports at the time said the call was left to Frentzen and he decided to wait. So, Mike, for Frentzen to get fifth, given the conditions when he ran on track, was a great effort. But was there some frustration that he'd not made the call to run sooner? Uh, not really. I mean, the driver's got to be happy when he wants to go and Heinz Harold at that stage, you know, was in charge of what he was doing. Uh, I mean, ultimately, you know, you can look after a session and, and when it rained and, and Damon went out, you know, when, when it was, when it was very, very wet and, and obviously failed to qualify. Um, but, you know, it, the driver's got to do what he's happy with. But I think, as you say, it, Heinz Harris' performance showed what what he could do, um, and and with the forecast, you kind of, you know, it wasn't a bad grid position, um, but you know you've got to go with the the guy who's confident, and and when he feels he wants to go, then then you've got to go with it. And as you mentioned there, uh, Hill failed to get inside 107, percent so he was technically a non-qualifier for this. He was only 0.002 percent outside the limit, but that did mean he joined the Arrows and Minardi drivers in officially not making the cut. He was only a tenth slower than Eddie Irvine in 17th, although Irvine's best lap was ruined by a spinning car at the final chicane. All five drivers who missed the cut were allowed to race, and we'll cover off Damon's miserable Sunday here as well to, to get it out of the way effectively. Eddie Jordan said, we got him into the race somehow, but to be honest, we may as well not have bothered. Uh, now, when Hill first announced his retirement for the end of the season, Bernie Eccleston said he should stop immediately. Bernie said, I hate guys who say they're going to stop at the end of the season. If they have a crash and something happens to them, it's made all the worse because everybody knows they were getting ready to pack it in. Hill referenced this comment in his book, saying that Bernie referred to a red light coming on in the driver's mind when he decides to retire. And Hill says he saw that red light during this race. Damon wrote, by the time we reached the French Grand Prix, I found I couldn't drive the car. I told Eddie I thought there was something wrong with it. That was when I began to think I'd had enough. I didn't want to wait until the end of the year. I wanted to go as soon as possible. The race in France was horrific. It tipped down and I couldn't see where I was going. And that's when Bernie's red light came on in my mind. I had gone from being brilliant in the wet to being afraid and angry that we were expected to race in these conditions. It was time to stop, but thankfully the car did it for me by developing an electrical problem. Ed, very quickly, what do you think of Bernie's theory? Is it really practical that once a driver decides he wants to stop at the end of the year, that he should actually stop immediately? 
Well, it can be inconvenient to have drivers stopping uh, mid-season, <laughs> but it's probably the lesser of two evils because it's even more inconvenient to have someone driving around not getting close to the potential of a, of a particularly good car. In, in this case, when you have a driver of Hill's stature, it does bring all sorts of complications into the equation with sponsorship deals and, and that kind of thing. But once you've got a driver who's checked out mentally, you don't get much out of them. And and for all its efforts, Jordan couldn't get much out of Hill for the rest of the season because it wasn't there to, to extract from him. He, he, he was pretty much gone. And I imagine it was incredibly frustrating to have, well, one driver's flying, the other one just not able to achieve anything like the level he should have been capable yeah, of. Yeah, Mike, Damon made it pretty clear as soon as he retired from this race in his TV interviews, he said he might never be seen in F1 again. As I said, we won't go into the saga around the British Grand Prix, but on that Sunday night in Manicor, did you think that Damon had probably raced for Jordan for the last time? Um, I think I think we did. I mean, as, as I said, he, he did have a genuine electrical fault um, during the safety car. Uh, the car went on to five cylinders. Uh, it was only running on one bank. Um, and actually, he was reporting the fault and we were we weren't necessarily believing him, um, but he couldn't even keep up with the uh, cars in front of him behind the safety car, so we retired him. But I, I, I'd agree totally with Bernie's comments. When drivers feel like that, they should immediately stop because you know they're not going to perform, and they are a risk to themselves and, and other drivers. They're going to break early. They're going to. Um, and 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 they so I think you know when when that that light does go on as as um, Damon described, it is the best thing for them to stop. And Louder famously did it before coming back. Um, and 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 Damon clearly wanted to do it, and um, you know uh, and and Eddie wanted him to do it. Um, what then what then went on after that before Silverstone was was, was not great. Um, but I, I firmly believe that when when a driver feels like that, then the best thing they can do and the safest thing for them and their family, especially Damon, he had a great career. He was an absolute gentleman, a really nice guy, you know. Uh, and, and thankfully, he finished the season and he and he was safe. Um, but um, you, absolutely, they should stop when when that night goes on. Let's get into the bulk of the race then, because it does start off dry, but everyone knows there's a threat of rain later on. The stars of the show in this early dry phase were undoubtedly the McLarens. Coulthard quickly moved into the lead from fourth on the grid, uh, pulling away at the front. Meanwhile, Hakkinen stormed from 14th to fourth in 10 laps. But Coulthard broke down after just nine laps when he was already seven seconds clear of Barrichello in second. So that left Barrichello back in the lead ahead of Alacy, Frentzen, Hakkinen, Schumacher and Panis. So Ed, based on those early laps, if this had been a straightforward dry race, even with the mixed up grid, would it have been a McLaren walkover? Yeah, certainly if it, if it stayed dry, it looked like they had had the pace. Coulthard was at a pretty commanding position. I think he was about seven and a half seconds up the road from Barrichello. Hakkinen was, was coming through, as you said. So in those first 10 or so laps, it looked like it was going to be McLaren's day and you'd have probably said, yeah, a one-two finish, reliability allowing which was far from a foregone conclusion for McLaren that year would have been would have been very very likely so yeah it, it was McLaren's race in the, the very early stages but it quite rapidly started to, to get away from them 
Now, before we get on to the weather turning, we need to talk about a secret weapon at Jordan. Uh, and according to Eddie Jordan, that's a man called Big Dave. Uh, Big Dave was a fixer and odd jobs man for the team, apparently. Uh, prior to the race, he was asking Eddie if there was anything he could do. So Eddie sent him off towards where the dark clouds were in the distance with a mobile phone in his pocket. Uh, Big Dave was then told to be in contact with Andy Stevenson, who is still at what we now know as Aston Martin. And uh, Eddie's message to Big Dave was, if you can see the rain's coming, we'll need to know how far away you are, how strong the wind is, and most important of all, how long you think the rain's going to last. A few laps into the race, Eddie said Andy Stevenson came over, saying Dave's been on, he says it's pissing down and there's no likelihood of a let-up. After that, uh, Eddie says to this day, uh, that message was key to what would unfold over the rest of the afternoon. So, Mike, I have to ask, does that story sound familiar to you? And did you ever have much to do with Big Dave at Jordan? Uh, I think the story is very familiar and basically true. <laughs> I think who, who, who asked him to go where he did and who received the phone call? I think Eddie's a little bit liberal uh, with the truth. So uh, a Big Dave was Big Dave, lovely guy, uh, was a motorhome sort of fixer. He was as tall as I am short, so uh, the two of us having a discussion was always entertaining. Um, but he was sent off. He did ask what he could do, and he was sent off. I, I thought he was um, speaking to, to Trevor Foster, um, the team manager, um, because we knew it was going to rain. Um, I think there, there was starting to be some Meteo France was starting to do some weather reporting. But... Um, he did go off. He was standing in the field. I don't think he really reported on wind directions and all of that. That was a bit um, bit beyond him. But uh, he, he, did, he did basically say it's starting to rain here and it's pissing down. And um, that was sort of fairly clear message. And that was crucial for us because I think we all knew it was coming. But the strength of the rain and how much it was raining was crucial for us because we'd we'd said in that situation if it was coming and it was going to be heavy we would um put extra fuel in the car to, to then go to the end and it did allow us to change our strategy um when the rain came and the pit stops happened and ultimately that's what won us the race so uh, i'd agree with eddie it absolutely absolutely was critical in the decision we made on the pit wall um you know that uh, on the technical side of the pit wall i'd say um so it was absolutely key now uh i think we can put a bit more of eddie's recollection to the test here because i'm interested to see what you make of the next part of his story because he said after that message came from big dave uh eddie made the rare decision to ask trevor foster about the team's strategy and eddie says he asked if the track's wet and the pace is slower, how many laps do you reckon we can do with a full tank to the brim? Do you think we could get away with stopping just once? This was the point when the heavens opened at the circuit and everyone piled in for wets. Eddie Irvine managed to get in the lap before the leaders because he was running towards the back, but Ferrari didn't have his tyres ready for him, so he sat there for a painfully long time. Everybody else made it back to the pits, and at this point, Eddie said, this is when Eddie says the decision was made at the last moment to fill Frentzen's car to the brim and then just to see if he could get to the end. Now, Mike, this was 
just before the safety car came out. So is Eddie's tale of events there tally with what you remember? I, I, I mean, absolutely it does. Um, uh, you know, being diplomatic, uh, I'd say it was already, I mean, to change fuel levels in the fuel tank is not simple and you need to do it quite a way in advance. Um, uh, they were the old fuel rigs with a fixed volume that went in. And absolutely, that was a plan, one of the planned strategies. So sort of to, you know, whether Eddie asked the question, it, it was a planned strategy. And when we got the call, the team, the technical team on the pit wall absolutely knew what we were doing in terms of the calls we were going to make. So um, it, although it happened, you know, uh, during the action, it wasn't an on-the-fly decision. It, it was a very pre-planned decision for that scenario. Now, this rain when it came was was something else. Big Dave's description earlier was was certainly accurate. Uh, Frentzen wasn't happy with the handling of his car on a, on a full, full fuel load, and he was shouting on the radio for the safety car to come out, and I'm sure he wasn't the only one. And then poor Alacy, a wet-weather maestro, uh, was slid off the road at the start of the lap, and shortly after that, the safety car did come out. There were people going off the track all over the place by this stage. Villeneuve and BAR looked to have pulled a clever trick when he came back in to top off with fuel, perhaps showing a, a legacy of his US racing background. But that came to nothing as he then spun off behind the safety car. So the less said about that, the better. Now, Ed, back then we were still in the early stages of the safety car being used in wet conditions. Sometimes today it seems that modern F1 is a bit too cautious on this front, but with how bad the rain was in France that day, we couldn't have any complaints, could we? Yeah, it got very, very wet very, very quickly. And the fact that a number of drivers went off under safety car conditions, albeit I think some of them were kind of catching up the pack, is revealing. I'm all for drivers having to race in difficult conditions, but they've got to be possible. And once you get into just unavoidable constant aquaplaning that just becomes a lottery when you're not driving a car you're you're in a boat that you haven't got a a rudder for so yeah i think looking at those conditions it was fairly well judged i think um just to add to what uh, ed was saying you mentioned the lacy going off and i think that's um as as he comes out of the pits um he goes off in turn three um there was a massive river running across the track that just sort of instantly appeared and Alacy, as everyone you know knows is one of the, the the best sort of low grip wet weather drivers what you don't see if you actually watch the replays Heinz Harrell comes out just behind him and has a massive moment on that um, river and I think runs wide onto the grass and very nearly does exactly what Alacy did and just catches it so it kind of shows a what the conditions were like and fine margins of how you can go on to be a hero, but very nearly get it wrong. Yeah. And the safety car period, of course, was was huge for Jordan's strategy. So, Mike, when it first came out, did you know roughly how many laps you would need under the safety car to make the strategy work and to get to the end without stopping again? Well, I mean, at that stage, you, you don't know what the lap time is going to be. Um, so you don't know where, how far you're going to go because how wet is it? How little fuel will they be using? And um, uh, so, so you're trying to do those calculations, but you just don't really know. 
I mean, that sort of follows on. People may remember the classic race with Tyrrell in 97, where we, we ran the whole race without a pit stop during wet uh, conditions at Monaco. Um, so that was something that was always in my mind. But ultimately, you've got to see what unfolds with, um, you know, with the lap times they're going to do and how wet it is. But when that happens, the safety car is always just going to make your life easier. Um, so there was some pretty frantic scribbling going on on the pit wall. But in those days, you didn't have all of the accurate um, sort of uh, flow rates and everything into the engine. So it was a little bit of a of a black art, but the safety car just obviously helped our, helped our strategy. And the safety car was out for 14 laps and then the race resumed with 37 laps to go. And the order was Barrichello, Hakkinen, Frentzen, Michael Schumacher. Schumacher had been subdued up to this point, but that was because he'd been plugging away in the dryer with a full wet setup. A couple of laps after the restart, Hakkinen closed in on Barrichello at the hairpin where he'd been nailing people all race up to this point. But this time, Mika clipped the inside curb and spun around, losing eight seconds and dropping to seventh place. Now, Ed, Hakkinen was stunning to watch in this race, but in this instance, was he just a bit too eager? It was more perhaps imprecise and a little indecisive than over-eager because he looks a little in two minds about whether he's going to send it up the inside and then he commits and it's a slightly strange line. And then, yeah, he just clips the curve as you say and, and, and sends it it round so he, he had been really really strong on the on the brakes into there so I wonder if he'd been even more eager and, and decisive then Barrichello would have would have seeded as we saw him do earlier in the race because Rubens knew that he was racing a, a, a faster car so there's no point in him colliding trying to hang on pointlessly so yeah just just a slightly odd misjudgment from Hacken and it's easy to lose it once you make that mistake but you've just got to be precise in those conditions. And then Schumacher was the man on the move at this point. He picked off Frentzen and then, to perhaps prove Ed's point, he uh, lunged Barrichello from miles back and got him at the hairpin. Schumacher disappeared into the distance. His lead was almost nine seconds at one point, but then he mysteriously lost eight seconds on lap 51 when he could briefly only find first or second gear. He came into the pits on lap 54 and it was a long stop because Ferrari had to change his steering wheel as well because of an electrical problem. That put Barrichello back in the lead, but he was passed again by a recovering Hakkinen on lap 60. The expectation was that both Hakkinen and Barrichello would have to pit again, so Frentzen's job was just to manage his fuel use and try and keep them in touch, which became a bit more difficult on lap 61 when he almost ground to a halt coming out of the hairpin. Frentzen said afterwards he couldn't find a gear and that he thought his race was over. So, Mike, Frentzen lost eight seconds to Hakkinen with that drama. Did you know exactly what the problem was? Yeah, he basically had to stall cut in. So, because he went down the inside, the gear he was in, the revs just dropped right down and anti stall cut in. And he just had to disengage it and select a gear, uh, which he did in the end. But that was a critical moment for us because at that stage, we were co- we knew then we were going to the end. and we were looking at the cars in front of us, monitoring the gap, and we knew we were on target to win the race. And, and Hakkinen was the guy we were concentrating on. Um, and if he had to stop, we knew we were in a position to, to inherit the lead and win it. And, and as you say, Heinz Harold had been um, complaining about the handling of his car. 
I'm not so sure there was anything wrong with the hands in his car in the wet. He just had a heavier car than everyone else. And, um, you know, and, and therefore was was slower. And he had to manage it, which he, as in all good racing drivers, they, they just get used to the way it is and drive it. And And he was, you know, as you say, maintaining his pace, his fuel usage, everything. So that was a, a big, big moment for us. Um, in typical Heintarrell fashion, he he coped with it. A lot of drivers would have just panicked, and you know you've got this 10 second cutout when um, you know if you don't disengage the anti stall, it will it will um, uh, cut the engine. But he he did that and um, uh, and recovered and was cool enough, having lost the eight seconds, just to get back in it. The next lap was straight back on it, and um, we lost a lot of margin. So it, 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 you know, it warmed things up on the pit wall, but we we were still confident of of, of our pace at that stage. And Hackinen's lead over Frentzen was 14 seconds before he and Barrichello pitted with just seven laps to go. The rain had eased off by this point, and it briefly looked like there was a window for slicks. Ricardo Zonta put slicks on his BAR, and it didn't take him long to start going quicker than the leaders. But it did rain again towards the end, so he couldn't make the most. Of that advantage. Hakkinen said he considered slicks but decided against it because of how difficult it was in this era to get the grooved tyres up to temperature. So he and Barrichello both took fresh wets. Hakkinen came out of the pits a couple of seconds behind Frentzen which shows how tight it was after that problem. But over the final laps rather than Hakkinen chasing the Jordan down it was Frentzen who pulled away and he ended up winning the race by 11 seconds. It seemed a little strange for Hakkinen to suddenly not have any speed, particularly when it started to rain again at the end because he was on fresh wets. But Mika said afterwards that McLaren told him to bring it home in second and not risk losing the six points, probably motivated in part by Schumacher still struggling for pace since he rejoined with that new steering wheel. So Mike, just finally, before we let you go, what made the difference in those final laps? Was was Frentzen told... He was clear on fuel and he started to push or were you guys on the Jordan pit wall expecting Hakkinen to put up more of a fight? I think it's always difficult on how tyres, wet tyres are going to behave on a drying track. Um, and you've seen it several times that, um, you know, and especially modern era with intermediates and, and heavy, you, you put on a tyre that you think should be much better and suddenly you just, you just stop going anywhere. Um, you know, with the drying track, and, and when you've got worn wets and you've taken a load of rubber off them on a drying track, um, they can um, overheat less than the new wets. Um, and new wets on a drying track, which have got much more rubber retained heat, they can overheat. You can knock the edge off them, and and then subsequently, when it rains, you you kind of destroyed them more than your existing wets. Now. Whether that was the case or whatever, but, you know, it's just never as clear cut as you think. And, of course, with a small gap, things were obviously going to be tight. And, you know, we were hoping that rather than a two-second gap, Heinz Howard would have, would have had a 10-second gap, and that was going to be enough. But as it turned out, you know, and, and you know, you'll never know because you can never reproduce the conditions, but his tyre combination just worked for those closing laps. Yeah, and in the end, he made it look 
quite straightforward. Uh, Mike, thank you so much for taking the time to join us for this trip back to such a memorable race and a memorable achievement for Jordan. I really appreciate it and all the all the added little stories we can get from the inside from having you along with us. So uh, thank you very My much. My pleasure. It, it seems like a long time ago now. I mean, I'd just like to say one thing about Damon. Uh, I remember the final race in, um, in in Suzuka and the team was celebrating its third place and uh, everyone was in the log cabin singing and I was at the back with Damon and true gentleman, he just turned to me uh, and actually he sort of, we, we sort of gave each other a hug and he just looked at me and he said, I never wanted it to end like this. And I felt so sorry for him at that moment because because he was a world champion, he was a gentleman, and that was a difficult year for him. Um, but uh, he was a lovely guy. Yeah, because he parked a healthy car that day, didn't he? Um, yeah, and at, and at Germany um, with the brakes, he mm. parked a healthy car, which is never good, and just shows, you know, what we said earlier. If if it goes if it goes in your mind, then then get out. Massive thanks again to Mike for joining us for this episode and providing so much insight from the Jordan perspective. And as I said earlier, make sure you follow at Mike Gascoigne on Twitter because uh, he's just he tells stories like that all of the time and quite often uh, he spots uh, things people have said about his cars and he shares a bit more information about them. So thoroughly recommended from us here at Bring Back V10s. But Ed, before we finish, let's clear up a few loose ends from race and we'll go back to Hackenham first. As we discussed, this was an incredible drive from Mika, but one that ended up being punctuated by that spin and then not being able to chase Frentzen down in the final stint. Hackenham looked as jubilant as everyone in yellow Jordan kit in Park Ferme and said afterwards that without the spin, he would have won the race. The spin only cost him eight seconds and he finished 11 behind Frentzen. But if you think back to when he came out of the pits, he would have been in the lead potentially by six seconds rather than behind by two. So maybe we can give him that one. But bearing that in mind, should Hakkinen really have been this happy with a race that essentially he threw away? Not with the race, no, because it, it was a victory lost. I can understand why he was happy with the championship situation because it was a, a big swing in his favour. But any time there's a winnable race and you don't win it through your own unforced error, you have to be kicking yourself partly especially when the race is won by a driver and team that nails it like like Jordan Frentzen did. I guess he was just thrilled that despite the mistake, he still came out of the weekend with a, a big points gain against his championship rival. Although perhaps he might have had to revisit that had things got a little bit differently with the season, given that Frentzen did later emerge as a, as a genuine title contender. Yeah, I thought of that when we mentioned at the start, Frentzen being disappointed that he lost those six points in Canada. What, what Jordan would have given for those around sort of Monza and Nürburgring time. But let's get on to Schumacher and Ferrari. And actually, before we do, uh, let's talk about Ralph Schumacher. Because when I interviewed Ralph in 2010 for an Autosport Race of My Life feature, he picked this race as his best drive. At the time, I'll admit that threw me massively because I knew nothing about how Ralph had got in, on in this race. And we've not mentioned him yet in this episode. Normally you go into those interviews knowing a driver's obvious best races and you can guide the conversation a bit to make sure they say enough to uh, back then fill out the back page of the magazine talking about it. But Ralph summed it up really well 
when he said, sometimes in your career you have races that are special, but the overall result is not spectacular. You enjoy yourself, the car works well, then uh, when you try to overtake, it always works and everything comes together. But at the end, only you and the team notice. So Ed, would you have had France 99 near the top of Ralph's best drives without him picking it out? Uh, no, in fact, I remember when you uh, <laughs> you you mentioned what he'd chosen, it being something as a surprise, and it doesn't stand out in the memory. But I imagine it's one of those ones that had I been covering Formula One in '99, it was the sort of one that would have would have struck me. It's probably the kind of one I get, I'd have given him a good driver rating for, and then people in the comments section on the race would have been demanding to know why I'd uh, I'd I'd done that because it didn't make sense. When I rewatched the race in full with the timing and everything, I did keep a close eye on his pace for that exact reason. It was a very well executed race, apart from a, a brief excursion he did have uh, late on that didn't cost him anything. That Williams was not a great car at that stage. It was still struggling with instability and it didn't really improve significantly until the upgrade package for the next race at, at Silverstone. And that's when we started to see some of the more memorable performances from Ralph Schumacher that season. Podium at Silverstone, fourth at Hockenheim. Monza, had a strong run to second. And that European Grand Prix that he could and should have won, which we talked about in uh, Bring Back V10's season one in another episode about uh, a Jordan win. I think that Williams season really underlined how good Ralph Schumacher could be. It's a bit of a shame that history looks on him rather dimly as a Grand Prix driver. Sure, he wasn't Michael Schumacher, but who is? And on his day, he was a really good driver. Probably had his, well, certainly, in fact, had his best days at Williams and a really strong season. If you look back at uh, reviews of that season in Autocourse and Autosport, I think he's ranked number three driver for the season for what he did. And of course, he completely destroyed Alex Zanardi. So, this was Schumacher really showing his class over that season. Yeah, and, and he came from 16th to 4th in this race, but as we said, seemed to manage to do it without anyone really noticing his climb through the field. But this was Ralph's first year at Williams, and when I spoke to him, he also gave some insight into how underwhelmed he was when he moved from Jordan to join Frank Williams's famous team. He was expecting a big step up in terms of quality, but what he found was an engine and chassis combination that was basically quite outdated by this stage. He also said that Williams were behind on electronics and that some teams had really advanced electronics like a kind of simulated traction control. Ralph says we had big discussions about some teams that year because they didn't get wheel spin. We have touched on this a bit before and bring back V10s with Gary Anderson and Mark Hughes at the end of series one about how this era of clever electronics basically led to traction control being reinstated in 2001 because teams were developing software that could anticipate wheel spin rather than react to it. So it became a grey area in the rules. So Ed, with that knowledge and the rumours that we've heard in the years since, when I watched this race back, I was watching everyone like a hawk coming out of the hairpin and the final chicane. Do you think that already by this stage, some teams are up to some clever tricks in 1999? Clever tricks in Formula One? Surely not. <laughs> it's important to note there is a difference between clever tricks and outright illegality. You have to play to the rules as written. And while you're not, you are not allowed full-blown traction control, it makes sense to play with the electronics and any other tools available to you, even if they're utterly unrelated to that, even if they're, say, pit stop speed limiters, as we know were, uh, were used for various, uh, for various things. If you can do that to create the same effect, of course you do it. You draw the line when there's an outright illegal trick that's perhaps expressly hidden rather than a clever interpretation. And we know 
that there were rule changes for the following season to try and, and curb this. So, yeah, there were definitely th- teams doing this to different levels. The Adelaide hairpin is quite a good place to uh, to see that because you do see different pace. But, of course, because of the, the damp conditions in much of the race, also the driver's, uh, the driver's right foot would have played a, a good part in that. So, yeah, all good, good, clean stuff in F1, I'd say. I don't think there was anyone who was running hidden systems in code that were completely wrong, but... All you've got to be able to do is argue your case based on what the regulations actually say. It's the old Adrian Newey thing. There's no such rule as the spirit of the regulations regulation. No, and uh, Newey has found a few of those loopholes over the years. Let's move on to Michael Schumacher. He was struggling for pace at the end, as we mentioned. He got passed by Ralph, uh, and then he had Irvine forced to hold station behind him. In autosport, Nigel Roebuck was critical of this because he felt if Irvine had been allowed to race freely... He could have beaten Ralph to fourth, so Ferrari would have taken home an extra point in total that day. And Nigel wrote, if Ferrari loses the Constructors' Championship by one point, this little scenario might come back to haunt it. But everyone knows who runs the Ferrari team, and he sits in car number three. This was, of course, the race before Schumacher broke his leg at the British Grand Prix, and then Irvine became Ferrari's only championship hope. He ended up losing the championship by two points, which this instruction from Ferrari potentially cost him. But even if he'd just been allowed to chase Ralph down and failed uh, by being ahead of Michael, he would have been one point short at the end of the year. And then Michael could have let him through in Japan to win the title. But Ed, is that kind of mental arithmetic on the fly there? Is it unfair to play Captain Hindsight with Ferrari here, given Schumacher was always their number one? Or is this an example of why you shouldn't go too over the top with team orders earlier in the season? Yeah, I don't think you could look at it through the prism of what happened two weeks later at Silverstone and then over the rest of the season, because that was unforeseeable. Uh, Instantly, I saw that Schumacher crash. I was in the crowd at at Silverstone. But what it did show is how that kind of agreement can cause cause problems, because I do agree with the Nigel Roebuck take that while I wouldn't necessarily say Irvin definitely would have been able to pass Ralph Schumacher, he had been you know, battling with him before Ralph had gone past Michael and had briefly passed him before being repassed. So there was a possibility that there were more points there to be had. I don't really like it when teams hold themselves back too much. There's, there's ways and means to, to implement these team orders. I can understand why they wanted Schumacher to have every single point, though, because remember, this was before the Ferrari-Schumacher era had yielded any championships, so every point was was very precious. It's not kind of an Austria 2002 type case where the team imposed fairly unnecessary team orders on Barrichello, given Schumacher already had a huge points and performance advantage. It's just one of those quirks. You can pick out these moments in the season where something had been done differently, then it would have changed things. But you think, well, why would they have done that? So for me, it's more a perspective of, in line with what Nigel Roebuck said, that you kind of want your team as a whole to go after the best possible result, rather than thinking Irvin would be a championship threat because he wouldn't have been without Schumacher's injury. And in fairness, Ferrari would point to the fact that they still won the Constructors' Championship that year, even with Schumacher missing a bunch of races. There was quite a memorable moment at one point where Irvine did have a look at Michael and uh, Michael was... Uh, did not hesitate in giving him a massive chop to uh, remind him of those terms of his contracts that we mentioned at the beginning. Well, Silverstone 99 and Irvine's title challenge are both worth their own episodes in the future. So we'll leave the story there for now. A big thank you again to Mike Gascoigne for joining us. Thanks, Ed, for your latest appearance. 
And most importantly, thanks to all of our listeners for coming along every week to check out where we're heading to next in F1 history. Remember to get your questions in for our series finale using the hashtag BringBackV10s on Twitter, or feel free to leave us a five-star review and submit a question there instead. Make sure you check out the race website, therace.com, and to borrow Ed's line, don't forget the hyphen. And you can hear Ed every week on the Race F1 podcast if his regular appearances here are not enough for you. Next week, we're heading from one end of the 1990s to the other as we revisit the 1991 Canadian Grand Prix, a race I'm sure Nigel Mansell has tried to forget over the years.